Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to episode 77 of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co hosts, Paul Anderson, not that one. Come that on. works for this week, doesn't it? That absolutely. That's that's a seamless tie. <laughs> that was yeah, seamless, it was. yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, like, like the awkward silence there before you guys realise whether you're going to step in I or was not just and save me. Like, yeah. Was yeah. it WS? Was it PT? Which one are we talking about? Of course, on this week's episode, we are going to be reviewing Phantom Thread, the new film from Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, the the Anderson to which Paul himself refers, his namesake. Uh, we've also got a second review, have we not, Paul? We have, which was going to be, which I said last week was going to be. Of Thieves, um, and basically the reason I did that is because I've completely forgotten we were seeing The Shape of Water on Tuesday. So uh, we've bounced Ten of Thieves, and only any of us have gone to see it this week. Uh, and we are going to be reviewing uh, Del Toro's it, new one, The Shape of Water, instead, yeah. which I think is probably going to be the better of the two I films. I don't but... think it will take too many listeners um, by surprise that maybe Den of Thieves seemed a bit less essential than Shape of Water in terms of our review coverage. So we're going to focus on those two, really excited about that. But before we get there, we're going to get into the first part of the show. It's always the same. It's in the foyer. And this week for this section, Paul, I wanted to talk about the fact that um, I've taken note of a development in the world of film recently, which is that Charlie's Angels is to be rebooted in 2019, directed by Elizabeth Banks, which is a little bit of a head scratcher. Where, where did this news come from? Well, this the IMDb, me by I, I, okay. I stumbled across it, and I'll tell you why. I was looking for uh, future projects of one uh, Kristen Stewart, who I'm a big advocate of, not that she needs my support at this point. Uh, Kristen Stewart's attached to this Charlie's Angels okay. reboot alongside... Um, Lupita Nyong'o that people know from 12 Years a Slave and elsewhere which uh, got me to thinking Paul if we were to put together a new Charlie's Angels of our own not just based on sort of leery sexist uh, ideas but more about like powerhouse positive role model type women in the game right now who would Charlie be? Who would the angels be? And I want to kick this off by saying, for me, there's only one Charlie, and it is going to be Charlie herself, Charlotte Rampling. Uh, I've just seen her in the Red Sparrow trailer. We'll talk about that later. I think uh, Charlotte Rampling's got to be involved somewhere. What about the angels, Paul? Who would who would Ooh, be in yours? Okay, I think I'm going to go... I've got two suggestions, and one is very relevant to today's episode, because uh, we'll, get, we'll get to that later. I'm going to go with Florence Pugh, based on her performance in Lady Macbeth, uh, and Vicky Cripes or is it Cripes is that how you saying Cripes I don't I feel a bit bad calling her Cripes I feel a bit bad calling her Vicky Cripes so these are two very much up and coming uh, young actors uh, Vicky Cripes is incredible in Phantom Thread which yeah. we'll touch on more later absolutely incredible uh, and I'll probably throw Brie Larson in the mix as well because I think Brie Larson's great I mean they're interesting choices Paul because Florence Pugh of course was in the recent movie uh, The Commuter playing like a kind of badass uh, edgy fringe of society yeah. looking at me blankly but that is correct yeah that is it? correct yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah and then of course uh, Brie Larson is going to be Captain Marvel yes. is that right yeah in a, a future yeah. film so yeah both interesting I'd probably throw in as well uh, Gugu and Batha Raw who is great in most everything and seems to be a sort of on the up and up. Jack, any suggestions for our Charlie's Angels reboot that we're uh, not ever going to make? Yeah. <laughs> One that I could think of is probably Audrey Plaza, just to add sort of an amusement. Aubrey Plaza. Aubrey Plaza. Plaza. No, who's Audrey, 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 Audrey Plaza? Plaza. I don't know. Who's Audrey Plaza? What's Who she knows? been in? I don't know. <laughs> I can't there you go. I've got a name wrong. Yeah. Uh, but Aubrey Plaza um, could just be like the Charlie's Angel who looks kind of um, witheringly at everybody else yeah. in all situations. I think, she, I, think she'd probably make, I think she'd probably make quite a good villain. Yeah. 
that's think, true. Yeah, yeah maybe think, that then. Cool. Yeah, and, and we could also throw in. We need to throw in a bit more muscle, so maybe we could get um, revive the Hollywood career of Ronda Rousey now that she's grasping at straws over in the WWE. As long as she doesn't get to speak, then she could probably do a few armbars and stuff, and that'd be quite cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah, because she's her performance in which, which Fast and Furious was it? Was she in Fast Seven? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah it's not the best. Is the it, one with the fair. car jumping in Dubai, or is yeah. that six? No, maybe it's seven. That's number seven. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, if I've we entirely forgotten the events of number eight. So yeah, if, if we haven't got budget for Ronda's uh, demands, we could get Gina Carano because she's probably a bit cheaper and she's probably nicer to work with anyway. So yeah, uh, watch this space for our reboot of Charlie's Angels. Coming yeah, so in we're the, uh, we're apparently now making the Charlie's Angels movie. <laughs> what do we think of Elizabeth Banks as a director? Do we? I don't know if she's directed anything else. I, I might be wrong about that. I can I can look it up um, in due course. But yeah, I mean, interesting. I suppose she's someone respected in the industry and she's done such good work with. Uh, pitch perfect from all accounts but um and she's probably involved on the production side for that film those films as well uh i mean we'll see you just hope that what you get is something sort of um i don't know sort of forward thinking and, and relevant not something that's just a way of cashing in on the franchise name i guess right i mean it can't be can it be much worse than, well it can't be any worse they're, than the mcg efforts can it really to be honest so yeah I mean, they, they are, are yeah tr- truly dreadful, bad so even with even with some pretty talented women in those original yeah. Charlie's angels films i mean they are very Let's bad. Just hope it's not a reach for that. Yeah, reboot reboots are an interesting one. I think they're like Charlie. Sometimes when have they been done right? Have we had good reboots? If you, of, any... of anything, um, probably. I mean, I think by and large, though, the the rule of thumb is that yeah, rebooted things tend to be yeah, it's, worse it's than very difficult. It's very difficult to do well. So we shall see. Finger, I would say fingers crossed. Um, it could potentially it could be very funny. It could be good if they get if they get the tone right. Um, and don't yeah yeah and fingers crossed for some sweet tasting popcorn as we step up to the popcorn counter for this week's popcorn reviews coming up after this so my first popcorn film of the week is a film that I've been meaning to catch up to for a number a lot of years now never got around to watching it Uh, this is Giuseppe Torna. Torre, I'm going to go with that. Uh, Giuseppe Torre's 1988 film uh, Cinema Paradiso, um, which is, I might, from my understanding, seems to be very, very well regarded indeed, um, which is why I was so keen to watch it. Have you guys seen this at all? I, I feel that I may have seen this sort of 10 or 15 years ago on a disc that came free with a newspaper. I remember oh, how I that remember was. Right. Yeah, yeah, I had a, I did have it on a disc that came free with a newspaper, but someone lent me the Blu-ray. Is it so. worth revisiting? Is it worth going back to? I mean, how did this strike you? Because it's supposed to be like, if you're a kind of cinephile lover of the cinema, then this is going to be, you know, manna from heaven. But is it that? No. <laughs> to, to be frank, I, how come? It, it, it's anything anything that celebrates cinema and film in this way it should in itself be celebrated. So let me start by that. It is absolutely a, a love letter to cinema through the years. Um, so it basically tells the story of a young boy who ends up sort of sneaking into the cinema against his quite st- sort of strict strict mother sort of religious background against their wishes basically, and that, because the cinema is not you know not regarded as for children and. You know what I mean? So in like raw, so I would say rural, what the twenty or thirties Italy kind of thing. Mm. Um, 
so and then he kind of as he grows up he, he ends up working he ends up developing a relationship with the projectionist and, and, and as, he's, as he grows up it kind of tells a story about him he gets older it, it takes you through his life and then as but what you see as well which is actually very nicely done uh, it's some very nice visuals of how the cinema changes uh, how films change and that kind of thing so that that stuff is is lovely like it's so and yeah absolutely so I would say anyone anyone who says that it is right but for me the whole thing was just far too saccharine like just it was just overblown to the point of ridiculousness I, I'll be honest like at times I thought I was watching a Dolmio advert but do you <laughs> like, think do you think that that's partly a result of the sort of onset of like 90s and early noughties um sort of the worship of irony like do you think that being of the generation that we are and being so sort of knowing and, and postmodern and, and so on uh, like a lot of TV and filmmaking is these days that something that is just genuine like like when we talked about Paul um, It's a Wonderful Life like some mm. of that film just strikes you as like very sort of on the nose and like overly um, overly sacred but, but, but this is I mean this is even more on the nose and overly sentimental than even It's a Wonderful Life and it's, it's and it's ter- 88 this came out right. I just think if it it's not a badly made film by by any stretch and also i think the other thing that rubbed me up the wrong way from the start is now as as the film begins and i've never seen this before and it's obviously i assume it's hard coded into it's actually now it counts as the beginning of the film it lists all the awards it's won and i'm like come on it feels like yeah maybe that's like a reissue of the yeah and it just that's that feels a bit self-serving and uh, yeah, it just—it's it, not a badly made film, as, as I said. It just didn't work for me. It's—it's it's far too heavy-handed. And maybe um, that's the sort of textual equivalent of that problem that you have when someone really overhypes a film to you, and then you go and see it, and you're bound to be a bit disappointed because yeah. it can't possibly live up to the you know five stars plastered all over the screen or whatever. So maybe it's not the best approach from that distributor in yeah. this case. Yeah. So for me, for me, it was a dis- for me, it was a disappointment. It wasn't. It wasn't what I expected. But I said, if if you can handle if you can handle that, and, and you don't mind you sort of overblown emotional scenes uh then there's there's a lot to like here and certainly it's a film that if you are interested in that's the other i will close on this if you do have an interest in cinema then whether you like the film or not certainly watch it like it it deserves to be seen i would i'll kind of backtrack on my negativity a little bit there certainly deserves to be seen if you haven't seen it see it i didn't particularly like it as much as i thought i would pete what have you got so first for me this week paul is um a film called The Protagonist, which is actually the feature debut from uh, Luca Guadagnino, who is now very prominent and well-known because he directed, um, amongst other things, recently Call Me By Your Name, which, to my eternal discredit, I still haven't which I seen. I think is the film that we have talked about the most on this podcast without having, without having, without having actually having seen watched it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in the sort of um, stead of that film, I had a chance to catch up with this because it was on movies, so I thought, why not? They do a thing sometimes where they go back with a certain director to yeah, their first Yeah, it's called their first, movie. first, isn't it? Yeah, which yeah. is where we picked up the first one from first the film, Safety Brothers. First yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. you saw the Safety Brothers one, I saw this one. So this is a real oddity, Paul, because we know that um, Luca Guadagnino has directed um, I Am Love, Bigger Splash, Call Me By Your Name, again, that we haven't seen, uh, but is known as this sort of lavish visual stylist. He's really great at capturing sort of um, well-lit, upper-middle-class environs full of, like, people going through some sort of relationship strife, but all beautifully lensed. And then we get this movie, right back when he was in his late 20s, I I suppose, which is this sort of exploded documentary. I think it's the best way I've heard it described. Um, 
Tilda Swinton, who we know he's collaborated with now multiple times on all of those films that I just mentioned, actually. Uh, I don't know if she's in Call Me By Your Name, to be fair, because I haven't seen yes. it. don't know if we've mentioned it. <laughs> um, but in this one, an Italian documentary filmmaking team head over to London to make a documentary about a real-life murder... Um, the murder was of a guy who was in a cab, I think, and uh, two youths got into their cab, made him drive, and then ended up stabbing him to death. This was a real case in the 1990s that was, I think, 94 and was fairly well publicised. So the documentary that they're making is then filmed as the film. So it's very sort of meta. It could come across, uh, you know, and fall victim to the claims of, you know, being pretentious and, and so on. And I've seen also possibly justifiable, justifiable criticism of this being a little bit insensitive to the, the people okay. around the man who was actually murdered. However, the, the man's partner, the, the um, his wife, is interviewed for their documentary. But the interesting thing about the film for me is that what it does a really good job of is sort of critiquing, before these things were there to be critiqued, the way in which documentary filmmaking, particularly in the modern age, is so so uh, consistently vicarious. And the way in which we as viewers want to be fed things like Making a Murderer, things yeah. like Sarah Koenig's uh, series Serial, which people lap up in this sort of episodic format without ever thinking about the way in which staging this footage, editing together this footage, is manipulating incidents, is taking a certain attitude and approach to those incidents. And I think, aside from someone like Errol Morris, almost nobody manages, and maybe even him too, almost nobody manages to find anything like objectivity but what they do do is give us what we want which is you know blood and guts and intrigue and and you know fallout and all that kind of stuff so well this is the interesting thing with, with document uh, with, yeah as you say with documentary filmmaking because to make to in order to get people to watch the film they have to they do have to be so they have to use the, the elements of, of filmmaking that make narrative cinema enjoyable. Well, so, absolutely. Yeah, so. and, and what's more, Paul, like in this one, you get things like uh, Tilda Swinton and one of the co-documentary filmmakers here, uh, and they're in a kitchen, and they're making like a sort of reconstruction of where vehicles were on the day when the guy was attacked. And so they're using these things to sort of move them around to show position. And then at one point, somebody comes in and starts shouting to them, and they start laughing in the scene because, you know, they're people making a film. It can mm. be an enjoyable activity. And you think, well, you can't um, th think that that is disrespectful and inappropriate when you know the people making Making a Murderer, Serial, and all those things had moments of levity and fun and yeah. bonding and team, you know, all these things. So actually, as much as this thing is largely panned all over the internet, I think that some people have jumped to the wrong conclusions. And I think that actually the protagonist is a pretty interesting piece of work. If, you know, flawed, the, the style's quite jarring. It, it jumps around all over the place. Some of the filming is of a much lower quality to, to other sections. But an interesting start to a career that's gone on to, you know, really, really great and well, possibly you know, really great things. things. Yeah, we don't yeah. know yet because we haven't seen it. But already, I mean, <laughs> yeah. already up to and including this point, right? The, the stuff that we have. Yeah, seen. in fairness, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Paul, what have you got second? Uh, so this is a film again. I haven't. Well, I, I, I've been meaning to revisit for again for a while, and I, ha I would say I probably haven't watched this for about ten years now. But that's kind of irrelevant, really. The film in question is uh, being John Malkovich uh, from 1999, directed by Spike Jones and written 
by Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman, thank you, because I've just forgotten his first name. <laughs> it's like you knew, like you knew. Um, and this is starring uh, um, uh, John Cusack, uh, Cameron Diaz, uh, a very young Catherine Keener, who I forgot was in this, or a very young-looking Catherine Keener, uh, and of, and as you might have garnered from the title, John Malkovich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wow, genuinely, how? Why have I taken so long to watch this film again? I honestly had forgotten how great being John Malkovich is. It's just it, there is with with this kind of material. Um, just to, so to set the scene, if if you haven't seen it, uh, John Cusack. And this is a very brief summary. Uh, John Cusack finds uh, in an office building um, on a like on floor seven and a half, which is a half size um, office floor for seemingly no discernible reason. Uh, he finds a like hidden behind a cupboard, a passageway that leads into John Malkovich's head. Uh, and you can stay in John Malkovich's head before being ejected on the New Jersey Turnpike 15 minutes later. So, uh, yeah, kooky would be... Uh, would be it's basically primer, isn't it? But set in John Malkovich's yeah, yeah, head. Kind of, yeah, yeah, to be fair. Um, yeah, so this, this kind of material, I think, there is a very fine line between genius and arse. Uh, and for me, Spike Jones and Kaufman have nailed absolutely nailed this. Like it could have gone all kinds of wrong. It doesn't. I'd say it's one of the most silly, knowingly silly, but also very original films I've seen in in a very very long time. Um, to get John Malkovich on, I can only imagine the conversation with John Malkovich when they said, well, "Do you want to do this script?" I, you know that must have been great. <laughs> yeah. like, do you want to do this? And I would have thought he would immediately just gone. Absolutely yes, um, yeah. Just it's fantastic. If you haven't seen it, seek it out, find it. It's one of I would say one of the best films of. I'm going to hands down say I think it's one of the best films of the '90s. Certainly one of the most original, um, and also it's a great Cameron Diaz performance, which is few and far between. To be honest, um, if you see it, you guys have, have you seen oh, this? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, but again, like you, not probably for a, not for a, a decade. I would say yeah. re- reassess it, reassess it definitely. Will do. Um, second for me this week I have uh, another movie one I think actually this one's called The Crimson Kimono um, from 1959 directed by Samuel Fuller <laughs> the tagline for this Paul I'd try this one on for size <laughs> on the poster we have a picture of a Japanese man kissing an American uh, white Caucasian American girl and the tagline is yes this beautiful American girl in the arms of a Japanese boy <laughs> exclamation mark <laughs> wow uh, yeah, yeah racial politics are very much front and centre in this thing um, it opens up with uh, uh, woman I think she's called like Sherry Torch or Candy Torch or Sparkle Torch I don't know there's a stripper anyway who um, runs away from her club and is shot dead in the street and two investigators are on the case to try and find out who shot this stripper in the process they get embroiled in a kind of love triangle between the two of them and uh, a girl who uh, is an artist played by an actress called Victoria Shaw. One of the two detectives, as you may have guessed, is a Japanese man. The other one is a good old American boy. But turns out, shock and horror, that she might be more interested in the Japanese guy. The guy in question is played by an actor called uh, James Shigeta, who I understand from a bit of research around this was one of the most preeminent uh, Asian actors in the period of sort of the late 50s and early 60s, actually born in Hawaii and lived all his life, as far as I can understand it, in um, in America. But for the time, having a leading man or at least a supporting member of the, the you know, immediate cast be Japanese uh, or of Japanese origin was pretty groundbreaking stuff, I think. So the film at times... 
Ah, uh, skirts on being just sort of outright racist mm. in the light of it being, you know, 2018 now and, and yeah. progressed a, lot, a long way from there. But at other points, I think, does some interesting stuff with this dynamic, particularly the fact that the um, the American... Well, he's, a, he's a very good director, in fact, Sam Fuller. Yeah, true. Very and yeah, the, the American guy, uh, played by Glenn Corbett, who's the other guy in the love triangle, is sort of so convinced of the fact that he's the one who's going to be able to woo this girl and he's got like the skills and what's needed and he can't really even comprehend that it might be this Japanese partner of his who's actually swooped in there I like this it's not a perfect film um, it, it's got sort of a uh, a kind of noirish throwabout tone to it that's um, reasonably enjoyable and the intrigue doesn't necessarily um, doesn't necessarily hold up for the entire hour and a half running time but for the central performances I think it's worth it that one's the Crimson Kimono uh, from 1959 right well that's it for popcorn movies this week we'll be back very shortly with our coming attractions So, coming attractions, the section of our show where Paul and I, um, possibly little Jack Mills over there as well, yes. pitch in <laughs> with some films that we are excited about that should be coming out in the not-too-distant future. Uh, which one of you lads wants to start off? What have you got? What are we, Jack, uh, do, you want to, uh, do you want to step in? Yeah, What's coming, first. Jack? What's coming? Uh, so, recently I watched uh, the new Ant-Man and Wasp uh, teaser trailer, Yeah, um, which was released... I think last week. This was on your list of most anticipated. This was, right? actually, yeah. And so another one that was on my list. Um, we're not expecting this till August, unfortunately. But right. it is in pre-production. Um, and it stars Evangelina Lily. I think that's how you say it. Evangelina first. Lily, yeah. She's yeah. in um, like the the, Hob- the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings films and stuff like that. Uh, oh, yeah, she was in The Hobbit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. She, exactly. she stars as a uh, wasp. Um, you got Paul Rudd, obviously, back as... Reprising Hammer. that role, yeah. Yeah, and this sort of happens after the, the last... Uh, is it Civil War, I think? The last Avengers film. Um, and yeah, so they basically go on an urgent mission to sort of find secrets from their past. Because um, you, you said, Jack, before that the, the original Ant-Man like, worked for you, you enjoyed it, right? Yeah, and so yeah. you were, obviously you anticipated this because you put it in your list. From what you saw, albeit it's like a two-minute trailer... Do, do, are you filled with sort of confidence coming towards August or did you feel like it was a bit just more of the same? Uh, I think it's going to be slightly different obviously having this this other new character who is has very, wings has right? wings yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I did enjoy that and I think there is the, obviously the comedy value from Paul Rudd as well so that is quite exciting but I think you know as another Marvel film braces our screens I don't know if it's going to live up to the set pieces the first look cool one. I think yeah, like the, the changing in size stuff is always is always quite good fun as people are aware that I'm a big big fan of mm. Incredible Shrinking Man again comes to mind that's a film I'm just going to that's going to be a running yeah, joke for myself well, you can keep, keep bringing up we yeah. can keep going back to that Paul because then we don't have to dwell on downsizing which at oh, least from my side ouch. of this table <laughs> is disappointing um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think I'm with you, Jack. I think from the trailer, I like Evangeline Lilly. I think she's um, quite attractive, but also uh, quite capable. Yeah. And Paul Rudd's one of those guys where, like, even if the film's not fantastic, he's like amiable enough to carry the material and for you to want to engage. He is with incredibly it. watchable, isn't that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You see, he's, he's, whether it's all like phony, I don't know, but he does seem like the kind of guy that you could like go for a beer with and yeah. get along with, <laughs> and that's where he what he trades off, I suppose, isn't it? So yeah. yeah. So we're saying, what, early August, mid-August? Do we know a uh, I think specific? it's the 3rd of August. 3rd of August. Moat, currently. So, so we'll later on in the summer. Keep eyes to... out for that. 
Paul, what have you got for coming attraction this uh, week? I've got the one that you accused me of stealing from you because <laughs> I wrote it down on my piece of paper before you'd even arrived today. So, uh, yeah. yeah, sorry about that. Well, um, <laughs> uh, I thought we had agreed, Paul, that any film star- starring uh, or co-starring Charlotte Rampling would be uh, 100% oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think we have Is a Charlotte Ram- I didn't spot Charlotte yeah, Rampling. Charlotte Rampling's in this trailer. Yeah, um, th- sorry, so the film in question is uh, Red Sparrow uh, from Francis... Is it Francis Lawrence and starring Jennifer Lawrence? Is it Francis that might Lawrence be as correct. director of this? Uh, I'm sure it's the guy that directed The Hunger Games. But anyway, this um, yeah, that's right. This looks to me uh, remarkably similar to something like The Villainess, or certainly uh, Luke Besson's Nikita, and I think is called Salt. Salt, yeah, Salt, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think more so, more so those two, more so Nikita, I think, because it, like you've, you've got the whole thing where she kind of gets kidnapped against their will and then trained up to be an assassin by this secretive organisation. And to some extent, Atomic Blonde as well, right? Which is not that far off in terms of that subterfuge. So I think it's kind of, I think it's, it looks to be like kind of sort of kick-ass action stroke espionage um, thriller with, with Jennifer Lawrence in the lead. I have to say when I first saw the teaser, I wasn't overstruck on this. I think whether the film ends up being any good or not, I genuinely, the, um, the jewelry's out. Oh, Joel Edgerton's in this as well. Who Joel I Edgerton's in rate it. Rate very, and, very highly. And, and beautiful um, uh, Matthias Schoenhartz is in this as yes, well. Yes, Matthias Schoenhartz is in this. And yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, I didn't know he was in this. And he's he, again, has got a very... He's got a presence about him. And, and Jack, you've got quite a thing for Jeremy Irons as well. You? <laughs> <laughs> you were saying just off air. I've forgotten about that. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is quite a starry cast, really, isn't it? It is quite a starry cast. pulpy bit of action. I think it could it could go either way, to be honest. It, it, it could go either way. I'm, I'm hopeful... Yeah, basically... So whether the film turns out to be any good or not, the trailer's brilliant. Like it's such a well cut together trailer. Like it's, it's, it's you could almost do a, you could almost do a, a whole show just reviewing how people put together trailers. Mm. Whoever's cut together this the uh, Red Sparrow trailer has done an incredible job. Yeah, you're there. absolutely right, yeah. and, it, and it's got that um, that kind of. Who's your guy who d- does all the Chris Nolan soundtracks? I've lost a name. Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer, right. Yeah. So it's not Hans Zimmer, but it's got that Hans Zimmer style without being as overblown with yeah. the bar as you get from Hans Zimmer. So yeah. yeah, I'm so with you, man. Like, I don't know whether the film's going to be up to too much, but the trailer was really good. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, Jennifer Lawrence has the you know you know the new uh, swimsuit that everybody's going to want once this thing comes yeah, out, like, yeah. like she had in Passengers as well. Yeah, so that's yeah. something. It's a bit of something. Uh, what have you got then? Um, well, I've got one that Paul, I think you might have mentioned before, but I thought it was worth bringing up again because the release date is is really close on the horizon, the sixteenth of February at least in the UK. This one is Greta Gerwig's uh, already much lauded uh, directorial debut, Lady Bird. Uh, for those that don't know, the star here is uh, Saoirse Ronan, who's an Irish actress who's obviously done incredible things already at quite a young age. Uh, here she plays a 17-year-old artistic girl. Is she 17? Yeah, Saoirse Ronan's about 27, isn't she? She's 24. She, oh, that's who you yeah. were talking about. <laughs> earlier was, yeah. yeah, not just... Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. She's 24, she's playing 17, but she's got one of those faces, I think, where she can just about get away with it. Uh, we were talking off-air, Paul, about the fact that the trailer for this, as much as we're looking at a meta score currently sitting at 94 looked a little bit made it look a little bit grating um, I think it's, it's certainly it's the longest trailer I've seen it's the the, the, the the final trailer is certainly the, the most I've seen of the film and yeah I'm kind of with you Pete to be honest I'm not sure whether this could be a little bit 
sort of contrived Sundance I mean, fair, if that makes sense. I think it sort of goes without saying, Greta Gerwig is phenomenally talented. As an actress, it's clear, but it sounds like all the sort of buzz that you get around this is that also behind the camera, she's done great work here. She's already been, you know, award nominated and won awards for Lady Bird. So I guess I'm going to lean towards thinking that this will be really good. I mean, you've got people in it like uh, Lucas Hedges as well, who was in uh, Manchester by the Sea. That's where I recognise um, him from. Timothy Chalamet, yeah. who's like flavour of the month at the moment. Um, yeah, so th- there are other people involved. Uh, Tracy Letts is in this as well. Um, other people involved who I think are of a, a pretty high calibre. The user score on IMDb is a bit lower than the critical uh, claim that it's getting right now, so we'll wait and see. But that one is coming out on the 16th of February, and I, for one, am fairly excited. Yes, certainly. Right, well, that's it for coming attractions. Uh, join us momentarily for our feature reviews. So, the first film that we're going to dissect in detail this week for our first feature review, Paul, is uh, The Shape of Water from director Guillermo del Toro that people will know maybe from things like uh, Pan's Labyrinth, if not earlier films. Uh, I think you'll know their name from Pacific Rim. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Pacific Rim is where he really made his name for... Uh, Films about guys getting into giant robots that punch each other. (laughs) But before that, he did these obnoxious things like uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Yes. Yeah, 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 those kinds of things. And Um, Blade 2. And it it is worth pointing out, (laughs) yes, and it is worth pointing out that Guillermo del Toro um, describes Shape of Water as sort of the uh, loose third film in a trilogy with uh, The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. So with that in mind, we went in as big fans of the director with high expectations for this one. From what we could gather going into the film, it dealt with uh, coming together of uh, a creature. Um, the uh, what do they call it in the film? The asset. The asset. Thanks, Jack. Yeah, this asset that's brought into some uh, laboratory facility and forms an unlikely relationship with one of the cleaners working there, who is played by Sally Hawkins. Um, we didn't know much more than that, other than the th- fact that it looked visually absolutely ravishing, as you uh, ravishing as you might expect from Guillermo del Toro. Uh, before we get into our thoughts, let's hear a little clip. She deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you. You clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human. Stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent. Capable of language, of understanding emotions. So, um, yeah, so, so talking about the sort of expectation stuff, set up the story a little bit for this one, um, if you wouldn't mind, well, Pete, just I, to give us some... I did, I did do that a little bit before we went. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so um, Octavia Spencer and Sally Hawkins work as a pair of cleaners in the laboratory. Um, in that laboratory, there is a, a, an asset delivered. Early in the film, it's in a tank. It's like nobody can go near it, touch the tank. I think early on, uh, Sally Hawkins actually does that. And uh, you see this kind of scaly hand slam against the other side of the glass. Uh, also in this mix, we have Michael Shannon, the, the sort of, I guess, character actor down, uh, like, undersells Michael Shannon. But yeah, yeah. sort of... Um, incredibly gifted character actor anyway um, who is tasked in this film with playing this sort of um, pitiless 
consistently angry and controlling uh, guy whose job it is to basically assure that the asset is taken care of and then delivered to somewhere. Um, but what is the spanner in this works turns out to be that Sally Hawkins' um, character, who herself is mute, developed... It was quite difficult finding a clip, wasn't it? It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was that makes it more of a challenge yeah, for yeah. the producer <laughs> of this show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, she develops this relationship based kind of around her own feelings of, of isolation, wanting to connect with others, and the fact that she can start to build the relationship without needing to vocalise yeah. anything, which is obviously something that she can't do. Um, like I said before the, the jump pull, I was really excited about this. I love uh, a lot of Guillermo del Toro's stuff, maybe not all of it, um, but particularly these other two films I've mentioned, Devil's Backbone and, and uh, Pan's Labyrinth. And then uh, we get this one, and I feel that it is a partial success. Okay. But before I get into why I think that, what do you think? Well, how did it work for you I, if it did? For me, it worked It worked very very well indeed i mean the visuals uh as if the visuals is interesting because i think when we did this was for coming attractions i said that i'd overheard some people talking about this film and they said that they thought it had kind of a a visual a visual sort of ethic that looked a bit like the video the bioshock video games which yeah i, I thought that yeah which which kind of did did come through a little bit for me in the film but do you know the the one thing that i really that, that in fact I've, quite a lot of the film i think for me it evoked like a lot of like jean-pierre junet's work mm. um certainly with some of like the the um the richard jenkins and sally hawkins scenes where they're kind of like tapping their feet and they start dancing that and like the, those those little bits and i didn't really expect that which was which was quite nice because i you know junet's a, a bit of whimsy yeah there was a bit of whimsy in there which i didn't really expect which i think has been probably isn't rel isn't present certainly not in in pan's labyrinth so that was i think that was yeah. No. And I want to jump um, in, Paul, just to say mm. that we didn't mention, yeah, of course, Richard Jenkins, the great actor Richard Jenkins is in this, and he plays a sort of um, close friend, potential love interest of Sally Hawkins. It's sort of yes. like bubbling under the yeah. surface there. Um, and she spends a lot of time in his uh, apartment where he seems to be working as some sort of artist right yeah he's a sketch sketch artist yeah. um and you think you know will there be something between the two of them but it turns out that he's going to act as a sort of um accomplice when sally hawkins character takes it upon herself to try to free the asset from the clutches yeah. of the corporations that surround it um we should say as well the asset that we keep mentioning is of course played by doug jones who is yeah. the guy who plays all of the sort of creatures uh, featured in game of the well, I've, stuff. I've, I've been reading i've been reading before we get back onto what we thought of it i've been reading some interesting theories that in some ways it, it because the creature looks almost identical to Abe Sapien from Hellboy 2, mm. um, possibly in the first one, I'm not sure. There's been some rumour of maybe this is actually in some ways a prequel to Hellboy 2, because the creature does that almost exactly the same, which would be quite, which would be an interesting way to do it, to be honest. And it is, yeah. he's, he's, so that, that that's quite an interesting, also played by Doug Jones, strangely enough. So anyway, so, so back, back to what I thought of it. I, I loved it. I'll be absolutely honest with you. I think it's it's the first film so far this year. Um, in fact, up until what I saw this afternoon, which we'll get onto later, um, that met my expectations. I think. I think there's been a few of the bigger releases this year haven't really. We I think we were having this conversation off air the other day about that that not anything's come out that really has has hit the way it should do for me at least. Um, I'd say it's not quite up there with his best, which I would say is Blade 2 and uh, Pacific Rim. <laughs> no, it's not quite up there with, with Pan's Labyrinth. Um, the story, I would say, is possibly a little bit lacking and certainly probably the, the weakest bit of the film. Um, the kind of government man chasing down mythical creature um, isn't really that... It's not that engaging. 
Um, and Michael, although Michael Shannon's performance is once again incredible, the man is terrifying. He mm. is absolutely terrifying. I hope he's a very nice man in real life, but um, he doesn't he certainly doesn't strike me as one in this. So that's not the film's strengths, but for me, the film's strengths are the atmosphere. I thought was great. Um, the visuals, as I said earlier, were, are absolutely beautiful, and just the, the palpable sense of emotion between the, like, in the relationship between Eliza, which is Sally Hawkins' character, and the asset, which is the, said the creature, with the creature played by Doug Jones. The the emotion there is palpable, and I thought I just it really really resonated with me, and I, I finished it. I finished the film with goosebumps, and if a film if the film leaves me with goosebumps, then it's been a success. That's yeah, where I stand on I, it. You are not so keen, no, though. Are you? I'm I not. Think. I, I and I'm. I feel sort of bad coming in on this one because I like the film, so I want to get that out there. You know, first of all, I do like the film, and I think that um, the stuff that it does well, it does fantastically well. I think the sequence, for example, without spoiling anything that takes place in the bathroom and involves mm. an awful lot of water, is one of the most beautiful things I've seen in the cinema at this early stage of the year, but yeah. for, for some time. Um, I yeah, think that, yeah, yeah, like the practical effect with the, the monster is handled really well, as you would expect from Del Toro. I think that Michael Shannon is chewing all the scenery, but I think, you know, I like having him there and it's I'm glad to see him in something where he's used a bit better than maybe like 12 strong mm. that we talked about recently that he, that he was in um Octavia Spencer's good um as she usually is Sally Hawkins it does a very good job of sort of conveying um you were saying sort of the the relationship between the two of them but particularly the amount that she's able to put across without being able to speak apart from a tiny little bit in the film again not wanting to spoil anything mm. um then I think the standout performance is Richard Jenkins who I uh, I haven't seen as good as this in in a long time Having said all of that, I think where I yeah, depart where did it from go you a little bit because that was all very positive. Well, but... I I don't necessarily feel as strongly as you about the the impact that the relationship between these okay. two had. Um, I think that it starts very promisingly, like the exchanges with uh, boiled eggs. I enjoyed mm. quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it just felt maybe uh, ultimately like it needed some more development. But what we end up getting is something that seems at least plot-wise, to follow the lines of something more like Free Willy. Um, I think I understand why I say that. And that's not to place those in the same category, although I'm not, you know, taking a dump on Free Willy. It's got its, it's, got its plus points. Um, however, we end the film, and again, I'm, this isn't really isn't a spoiler, we end the film with a, a voiceover bit of verse, right? And it's a piece of poetry, and it's a piece of romantic poetry and this is supposed to be that gut punching the thing that obviously worked for you Paul, yeah. where, where you get those goosebumps at the end you get that big thing yeah. and to me it just rung a little bit hollow it felt like we're trying to imbue the film with a sense of romanticism that i don't think it's fully earned okay um aside from that quibble um i yeah the other thing paul that i think goes against it for me is that we've got this guy in game of toro he's such a, a visual stylist that on something like crimson peak which mm. was his, his last movie you've got that creaking house it's literally bleeding from the floorboards every element of the house has been sort of designed by del toro to, to evoke as much of the period as possible but we set this thing in this sort of like faceless laboratory um, full of sort of nondescript looking corridors and rooms which fine that, that's what we need for the plot but once we get out of that and when we get later sequences you know particularly involving water don't want to spoil anything mm. it's like man could we not have had more of this like this is what I want I want that connection to be formed between the, the world of the land and the world of the water between submergence and, and uh, oxygen breathing you know that dichotomy was much more interesting to me than having you 
you know, orderlies in a laboratory running about and, and you know, uh, maybe one or two extra scenes of Octavia Spencer and Sally Hawkins doing their regular cleaning mm. work. I, so I felt like it's a shame that we didn't get more of Del Toro really letting loose as Del Toro's can so well. Jack, did you see Jack, this who's as well? right? Who's right here? Yeah, oh, you're, well, you're, well, you're umpire. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, I'm picking up great points from both of you. Why, thanks. Yeah, and I think <laughs> I think I would have to agree with Paul Moore because for me, yeah, I've always been fascinated by Del Toro's work and I think it was just weird. It was wonderful. It was just magical for me. Um, and I think... I agree. I yeah. totally agree, yeah. Magical is a good, very yeah, good... Yeah, absolutely. Good, very good word to and, describe uh, it, I think. I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, the motion and the communication between Sally Hawkins and Doug Jones. I thought that... It was really good for me, I think. The, the other film that comes to mind, and I sound like I'm being or- horrible, but this film is, is Splash, isn't it? It's essentially Splash. <laughs> it's directed extent, by yeah, Guillermo, yeah. Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. And, and that's no... <laughs> right, again, are, you like, just, are you just... You, wait, I think what you're doing today is I reckon you've decided, you're like, right, what films has no one else mentioned in a review of Shape of Water? And you've gone, right, three really in Splash. Like, someone reckon, must have mentioned someone Splash. Could, yeah, the Splash well, maybe Definitely not three really, though. I don't think that's come no, up before. I don't, yeah. No, well, but, <laughs> but, but do you... I mean, I, I'm interested, though, in you guys, because it is just, you know... Film criticism is, is subjective, of course it is. And just because we have slightly different views doesn't mean one person's sort of right and one person's wrong. You're oh, going to experience things differently. But Jack, did for you, did this romance, that this sort of burgeoning romance between Sally Hawkins and the asset, did that feel to you like a kind of rapturous, involving on-screen romance? Or did it feel to you like this is where I'm supposed to feel feelings? Because that's, I think, a bit more what I got. Yeah, okay. Film. Yeah, no, I, I have to agree with that. Actually. He, she's but, she's excellent. But it, yeah. he's excellent. But just together, did you end the I, film with goosebumps? I would I would have to say yeah, I did. Come so, well, then it worked. Yeah. yeah, then it worked. Well, ultimately, Paul, the shape of water is whatever shape uh, the container is that holds that water. So therefore, you know, in this case, maybe this film fits more with you. Than I nearly ju- I nearly just put my headphones down and left the room. For, yeah, for, for that guy. yeah, yeah. It was close. It was close. <laughs> but I think that probably brings us to the end of our review of the Shape of Water. Uh, we'll be we're, back. We're going to flow right into. We're going to flow review. right into uh, the next review, which will be Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. So, second on the menu this week, um, the two big hitters this week, Paul. What, what a treat! It's been it? a it's been a great week at the cinema. I'm not going to lie, a very good week at the cinema. So, yeah. One uh, one guy you might know him, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, has a new film out, and that film is called Phantom Thread. It follows uh, on the heels of Inherent Vice, which was his last one that um, I gushed about, and I think you quite liked, Paul. Yeah, I still um, need to watch it a second time actually because I think I do need to reassess. Before that, that obviously, uh, you know, there will be blood uh, and. On and on and on, a punch drunk love. Yeah, all, he's, all he's the, made some right films, hasn't he? Yeah, and all the way back to uh, Hard Eight, which I think is his, his first yeah. feature, which uh, in its own right is, is pretty good, although definitely not his best film. Uh, now we get Phantom Thread, which is supposedly Daniel Day Lewis' final performance as an actor. I don't believe it, but we'll see what happens. Mm. Um, he plays this sort of fastidious. They'll get him out uh, of retirement for There Will Be Blood too. That's what I can see happening. <laughs> there will be more blood. Yeah, plain that's coming. Plain views back. That's coming. Um, yeah, in this one, yeah, he plays this kind of fastidious, fastidious, like controlling, fairly mean-spirited, um, yeah, like control freak yeah. of a guy who runs what seems to be the most um, 
beloved fashion house in the world, I don't know, um, in which he makes gowns for uh, prominent women, for royalty, for the, you know, uh, upper classes. In order to achieve the results that he desires, he wants to have control of every single aspect of the uh, dressmaking process. He has a team working for him and everybody answers to this character, Reynolds, uh, his, his first yes. name is, um, and must do exactly as he, as he says. Otherwise, he may fly off the handle, leave the room or worse. Um, into this mix comes the uh, character played by, uh, what's the first name of that actress, Paul? Come on. Creeps. You mentioned her Vicky. earlier. Victoria <laughs> Creeps. Vicky Creeps. Creepsy, uh, yeah, <laughs> creepsy to her mates. I'm sure. Co- yeah. Comes a this this girl who um, serves some food and drinks and stuff to him in a diner. You're neglecting the sister. You're neglecting to mention the sister because she's. I'll, I'll get there. Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, who go. who comes in onto his radar and he sort of plucks her from obscurity and wants to take her on as his next great muse because we've learned that he's just shunted his last muse for disappointing him in some way. Then we've got and Paul's mentioned. Um, uh, oh, now you've made me forget the name. Manville. What's her first name? Uh, um, great, great review, guys. Uh, <laughs> great review. Yeah. yeah. What is her name? Hold on. We can find. Whilst this. Paul's finding that, find yeah. This, yeah. So he has a sister who lives in the fashion house with him, or, or is there all of the time, who also seems to be pulling the it's strings. Les- Leslie Manville. Leslie Manville. So thank apologies, you. Leslie, if you're listening. Les- Leslie, Leslie Manville. Manville's character is pulling the strings of the uh, Daniel Day Lewis character, who in turn pulls the strings of absolutely everyone else in his sphere of influence. Before I exhaust all the words in the English language, let's hear a little <laughs> clip. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just waiting around like an idiot for you. This was an ambush, Alma. To what purpose? This is not... I know it's not going as I expected. I I didn't mean these things to come out. I'm sorry, but it was meant to be nice. Well, what did you expect? I wanted time with you. I wanted to have you to myself. You have me all the time. No. What are you talking about? I don't. there, There are always people around. And if not, then there's something between us. Something between us? Yes. What? So, yeah, that kind of sets the scene, really, and it is, a, is a, I would say, about mid, possibly midpoint of the film um, between uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character, uh, Reynolds, and Vicky... What did we say? Creeps? Vicky? Why do we keep forgetting her name? Vicky Creeps' character. Um, yeah, this film, Pete, is not what I expected it to be uh, at all, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, because I did like it very very much um i only saw this probably a couple of hours ago so i think it's still i'm I'm still kind of assessing my thoughts really on it um i what i was expecting was almost i mentioned there will be blood earlier and then uh, sort of similar to that really because he seemed it from the trailers daniel day lewis's character seemed to be this kind of almost could i was expecting this to go a lot darker than it did if that makes sense um, I was expecting a bit more more menace from him. And, it get and fairly kind of dark at a certain it, point. It, in this it film. is. It, it it does get very dark at certain points of the film. But I just I just think it's it's good that it didn't. But it wasn't what I expected. Um, and that's not. A, as I said I'm repeating myself now. That's not a bad thing at all. Um, there is there's there was a lot more black humour in this than I anticipated there being. Um, and I think there was probably more. More ro- ro- is romance the right word for what we see in this film? I'm not. It's, it's romance so. of a sort, isn't it? I yeah. think so. Um, and I think that so the one thing that jumps out at me is that for Daniel Day Lewis's last performance, it's a very good one, as you might expect from Daniel Day Lewis. Um, more, I would say, more understated than perhaps I, I thought it would be. 
But for me, though, and it's rare that I, it's rare that I think anyone can say this, Daniel Day-Lewis wasn't the standout performance in this, Pete. I think it was Vicky Creeps. I think she was absolutely incredible as Alma. Um, she basically... she. It's, it's a weird it's to describe the relationship between the two of them I suppose you have to say girlfriend and then possibly wife later on I suppose you have to say that mm. but it, it, help me out here Pete and, what is and, there and is, sort of, do you know what I mean the relationship is so bizarre and sort of full time muse I mean that's the yeah. that's the way in which he comes onto the scene really you know, there's always like this romantic in inverted commas thing broiling under the surface but it is essentially the first sort of date that they have she's thrust into a gown and told to move in all manner of sort of different poses and then Leslie Manville's character just shows up on that on that kind of on the date date, on the date but yeah I mean they're they're doing sort of funny references in the last one to uh, to films that might seem a bit obscure I think in this one things come to mind like uh, one for me was uh, Mike Takashi's film Audition for reasons that I can't go into in too much detail Uh, even um, the the film Gone Girl from a couple of years ago that, that David Fincher adapted from the novel uh, for reasons again which I can't go into it in a, do you know what sprung to mind for me great in length Duke of Burgundy yeah sure yeah that kind of power play yeah, relationship yeah. yeah I get it I mean yeah first things first from my side of the table Paul uh, to me this is the best film that's come out this year by okay. quite a distance um, I think Paul Thomas Anderson is one of if not the greatest living film director I, really that high on the guy I'm, I would, to be honest I'm, yes I, yeah, I, I, mean, can't, I can't say I disagree with you too much on that statement the, the, the control that he has at this stage of his career I mean this film is all about control the control of the characters on each other the control of space because a lot of this is shot in t- inside this one fashion house in sort of single rooms you know in enclosed spaces um, it's about the control of a relationship that develops between two people and the way in which those people control one another and then it's about the control of fashion and the way in which what people are dressed in gives some sort of impression of them. Uh, early on, we get that um, countess lady, who played by, slightly off-puttingly for me, the same actress who plays, uh, uh, what's she called, something like Vicky, Sh- Libby Shush in Brass Eye, the, the woman yes, who yes. says, uh, there's no uh, easy answer to the problems of crime, but there is one simple question, would it really matter if all of these men died? That woman. <laughs> and so that was kind of in my head all the time. But she says, when wearing this gown, hopefully it will make me feel more confident. So straight of, straight away, we have these really high Powered figures relying on the work that he does mm. to feel right about themselves, but then the character played by Daniel Day Lewis clearly feels, at some level, right down there in the dirt of his psyche not at all comfortable with himself or who he is and so everything has to be about projecting into the external world beauty and craftsmanship and perfection and you know all of these things when really at a lower level a bit like a Don Draper character in a, in a different kind of a way this guy is broken this guy is suffering internally and this guy needs someone to sort of slap him around the face and snap him back into being a human being the person who does that is of course this Vicky Creeps uh, character and you're absolutely right Paul she comes over like this sort of um, I don't know she, she looks a bit like uh, Sarah Polly maybe uh, facially. I thought she looks a bit like Gemma Arterton Gemma Arterton might be a good one as well but like yeah s- controls the screen in a way from someone who's done relatively to someone like Daniel Day-Lewis little work if you look at her CV it's not like she's worked at this no, level and then to just sort of take this jump up into like the but I mean the the absolute A-list of filmmaking and actors and like it just, and Leslie Manville yeah, who's in yes. this who's, who's held in such high regard and so good here yeah. as well I mean 
the the film to me was one of those and I get these if I'm lucky once or twice a year where I come out of the screen and I feel this sort of powerful sense of it's like a combination of like joy and awe and that's what I felt coming out of this thing I mean like you said you got goosebumps at the end of Shape of Water like they're totally different films but the way that Paul Thomas Anderson just builds this texture and the way that Paul Thomas Anderson also is like I'm not going to do what you want me to do the plot should probably progress at this moment but yeah. it won't because I'm in control no I completely agree with that Come as with I said me like, so many times I'm like in a minute so I was like are we are we approaching the third act here and then yeah. just, just as you think you might be coming like to some kind of narrative conclusion you're like oh no we're not like it, it, it wrong foots you as I said I'm still it's one of those films that I've you can probably tell I'm not saying much of any of with any sort of value to be honest because I, I think I'm still processing I'm genuinely Ooh. still processing and- kind of the events of the film and the kind of and the mood it evoked and that kind of thing I um, think. P- p- to be called out you know potentially be called out as a pretentious wanker like my uh, <laughs> mother said to me today oh it's called Phantom Thread she hasn't seen it she said it's called Phantom Thread so what is the Phantom Thread is it like a thread from the clothes or something else and I was like well it's it's many things isn't it it's yes. many things and it's one of those films that works on a lot of levels and it's one of those films that rather like frustratingly disappointing for me when it finished I heard the requisite people just over my shoulder say well that was weird and not give it a moment to think about what you've just seen so like you're saying Paul it's going to take some time to process I want to see this again it's two and a quarter hours two hours ten minutes something like that there's a lot in here it might seem like it's slim on plot which to a certain degree it is but there's an awful lot in here. I mean, even the thing about building or stitching messages into garments, mm. which is sort of um, early on in the film, we're introduced to that idea by Daniel Day-Lewis' character. And later on, there's a label that's removed from an item of clothing, which says on it, never used. And this is the kind of detail that um, is almost that, thrown I away. I can read that. I, I it's almost read thrown away. Said, so never used. Okay, yeah. But, but never used is to do with yes. the curse of touching a wedding dress yeah. that's been used by someone else, etc. So there's an awful lot going on. I compel you, if you're interested in cinema of any kind, to go and I see agree, Phantom I agree. Thread. And I have to say, I just I want to apologise for not being able to review it very well, because I am still coming to terms with what I watched. I thought it it looked as... as yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson is superb. He hasn't disappointed here. I need. I think I need to watch it again to fully to fully process what I watched. Um, in the same way that I think there will be blood. Like I, I love there will be blood when it first came out. The more I watch there will be blood, I'd say it probably is my. I, I, if I had to now on the spot name your number one film of all time for me, it would be there will be blood. Mm. And the more I watch that film, the more I get out of it. And yeah. I think this. Well, in fact, almost all of Paul Thomas Anderson's films are like that to it to an extent I, I mean, mean in, in... This is, Paul this is the film de- director who took the actor Adam Sandler yes. and put him in a movie where he plays an emotionally fragile self-loathing guy who made me cry in that movie I mean this is Adam Sandler I mean you've got to be some film director to pull off that kind of thing and just you look at the back catalogue as it builds and as we mentioned at the outset of this review like this guy like if you're again you know who am I just my opinion but if you're into films at this point in in 2018 and you can't acknowledge how lucky you are to have a director like Paul Thomas Anderson making stuff then you know I feel for you and on the Daniel Day-Lewis thing, the strength of this performance, let's very much hope this isn't his last performance as well. Because he, I mean, is, he, he is great, isn't he? Really he is. Good. He is really, a treasure really as an actor. He is, he, is a, he, is a, he is a very, very commanding presence on screen. It's certainly not the last we've seen of Vicky Creeps either. I just, I just want to reiterate that, that her performance, again, it is incredible. So yeah, check it out. 
don't expect to take it all in in first viewing. You're going to watch it when I watch it more than once. I'm quite excited about seeing it again. I might try and go again this week before it disappears because inevitably it's going to go out of the cinemas quite quickly because I don't think it'll make any money. Um, but that pretty much brings us to the end of the show. Um, what are we doing next week? Have we decided yet? Well, that's uh, TBA, I suppose, Paul. Yeah, because we don't want to do a Den of Thieves thing. And Although say we, could try, we could probably get to Den of Thieves this week, to be fair. Well, um, I, I mean, there are dozens of listeners clamouring for a full blow-by-blow account of Den of Thieves. So, yeah, if we can do that, we will we will feed the masses with that. But otherwise, we'll find the very best of cinema and we'll bring you reviews of it next week. And in the meantime, get yourself down to uh, both Shape of Water and Phantom Thread because they're more than worth a few hours of your life. Yes, I absolutely. Think. And uh, if you can't get enough of us from this episode, you can find more of us on at Strangers Cinema on Twitter and Strangers in Cinema on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, thank you, as ever, for listening and we'll catch you later. Shut up and sit down.